So again, uh, Second Thessalonians, let's uh, look at the entire first chapter. Uh, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, this is the word of our Lord. You know, when we uh, sit down with our friends, our brothers and sisters, and we uh, share with them the hardships uh, of our life, I think that uh, this is certainly the case for me. I think that our knee-jerk reaction is to expect them to uh, always understand our sufferings and our hurt, our frustrations from our own perspective. I, uh, I almost, when I sit down with my friends to complain about my life, I really want them to see my life as I see it and join in the complaining. I really want them to hop on the bandwagon and let's complain together because that is, after all, fellowship, is it not? And so it may be that you do that as well. But Paul doesn't do that, nor does he encourage that. He knows that these Christians whom he loves, he's been very, uh, uh, very uh, transparent with us about that. He loves them dearly. He knows that these Christians whom he loves are suffering. And in verse 4, notice something very small perhaps, but the persecutions are plural and the afflictions are plural. Paul knows something about what they are suffering. He may even know details about their suffering. But he, instead of jumping on the bandwagon and complaining with them, I know exactly what you're going through. Yes, that sure is terrible. He opens his letter with a note of grace and peace. He opens his letter uh, by giving thanks to God. Imagine that. This is not the time to comment on God's grace and peace, not the time to thank God. And then he even says in verse 3, uh, he, he thanks God about the rightness of life right now, that it's right for me 
uh, to do this. There's a sense in which there's not a lot right about the Thessalonians, at least uh, from their perspective. And then in verse 4, he boasts about them as if this is a good thing to be happening. And then in verse 5, almost like a slap on the face, he says, your life is evidence of good things. Their life is hard. Make no mistake about it. You know, Second uh, Thessalonians is written, uh, I think, just weeks after First Thessalonians is written. There's, there's nothing in between these two letters, no uh, indication of contact. So when we looked at First Thessalonians, the letter was filled with interaction. Uh, I miss you. I was torn from you. I hope to return to you soon. Uh, this is why I sent Timothy to you. Uh, Timothy brought back from you uh, a good report. But in Second Thessalonians, there's nothing like that. He just gets to the point. You see, Paul is still in Corinth. He's still on his uh, second mission. If you look in the Bible in Acts chapter 16 and 17, uh, and on into 18, you, you learn about that second mission, and that's Paul's life when he's writing both First and Second Thessalonians. And it would seem from Acts that right after Timothy uh, arrives back from Thessalonica, in Paul's own life, persecution that he experiences uh, immediately begins to intensify. Uh, Paul uh, actually receives a vision during his time in Corinth, and this uh, vision would seem to come shortly after uh, Timothy has just arrived from the Thessalonian church. And in that vision, in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, uh, the the Lord says to Paul one night, uh, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people." Imagine that. Things got so bad in Corinth that Paul was actually afraid, and God encourages him. And after that encouragement in Acts uh, 18, 9, and 10, uh, Luke, who writes Acts, tells us that Paul uh, stayed a year and a half in Corinth. But at the very end, when Paul finally leaves Corinth, what is happening Brothers and sisters of his and the church are being publicly beaten, and yet again, Paul has to leave for safety. And so since the first letter, persecution has actually intensified, not only in Thessalonica, but also in Corinth. And so in many ways, what Paul has to say to them, he's also addressing to himself. Uh, He knows that they are hurting. He himself is hurting. And he knows that they're hurting for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his church. And Paul is hurting for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the church. But he doesn't just park and complain. Throughout 2 Thessalonians, Paul is going to increase his attention and the attention of the Thessalonian Christians upon the second coming of Jesus. Here, amidst their tremendous suffering, amidst his tremendous suffering, rather than joining in their frustration, he's going to provide a mini textbook, as it were, on the Christian life. And what happens in this passage is that Paul is going to say three things about what it means to live as a Christian. And he's going to begin in verses 3 and 4 talking about the ideal Christian life. And it might be surprising to you, but the ideal Christian life in verses 3 and 4. And then he's going to talk about the great Christian hope. And here uh, he is uh, turning our uh, imagery to the second coming of Jesus. Uh, Here then is the great Christian hope after he shared the ideal Christian life. And then he's going to close with this. 
and we need to listen carefully, he's going to close with the unflagging Christian purpose. You want to know what your purpose is in life? Paul is going to close chapter 1, beginning in verse 11, with a Christian purpose. Ideal Christian life, great Christian hope, unflagging Christian purpose. Verses 3 and 4, the ideal Christian life. Why do you think it is that it is right that Paul would give thanks to God for his brothers and sisters? Uh, he uh, seems to say why it's right, but there's, there's more to the picture. In verse 3, he says that it's right to give thanks uh, to God for his brothers and sisters because their faith is growing abundantly. It's a remarkable word to see in the Greek text. It only shows up here. There's so many words in First and Second Thessalonians that are that are only uh, make their only appearance uh, in these parts of the Bible. Uh, but their faith—it's growing abundantly. Uh, he takes the word for growth and he adds a hyper to it. There's hyper growth. They're growing to the maximum. Uh, this word was actually used in classical literature to describe someone whose career is at its pinnacle. They're at the top of their game. And Paul says their faith is growing abundantly. It's grown to the maximum. They're loving God to the highest capacity. Yes, it's right that he give thanks to God for his brothers and sisters. But there's something else, too. He says that every single one of them are increasingly loving every single member of the church more and more. They're actually increasing in their love for each other in the church. And this is true for everyone in the church Paul says in verse 3. And in many ways, for verse 3 to end at verse 3, it would be extremely encouraging. Stop there, Paul. But he doesn't. There's more. This victorious language actually uh, continues. Where we think the victorious language ought to stop, he keeps going. Uh, Paul says then that uh, Paul and, si and, and himself, himself and Silas and Timothy, they actually boast about him. Another word that only shows up here in 2 Thessalonians. He's boasting about why. Why is he boasting about him? Well, we've heard why. Uh, there's great love in the church and there's great uh, faithfulness to God. This church is a great church. It's an exciting church. Things are, are coming together in this church. Their faith is growing abundantly. Their love for one another is increasing. It's right to boast about them. But I'm not sure that we are helped by just stopping there because in verse 4, Paul is going to even share, share with them that he notices that they are suffering. And this then becomes the punchline. All of this growth, all of this increasing love, it's actually happening while they are being persecuted, while they are being afflicted. And I think that's why Paul says it is right to thank God, because they are growing in the setting of affliction. They are increasing in their love for one another in the setting of persecution. And so it's right for him to praise God. Well, you know what Paul is saying here, don't you? If Paul is saying that Christian growth and Christian affliction, well, they actually belong together. Those things aren't meant to be separate. Our growth and our affliction, there's a, there's a relationship. There's a relationship in the Thessalonian church. There's a relationship here among this body that our growth and our suffering belongs together. In John uh, chapter 12, 
when Jesus was, was in uh, Jerusalem, he is uh, about to be betrayed and crucified. And he prays. And he says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Now my soul is troubled. Our Savior suffered. Uh, Preaching on this verse, Samuel Rutherford says something very interesting. He says that uh, this is where we really get to know Jesus. Uh, When Jesus is troubled, what does he do? In John 12, 27, what does he do? He prays. And, And Rutherford, preaching through this passage, he says it's important for us to notice that when Jesus is troubled, uh, he prays. And he goes on to say that uh, when uh, Job is troubled, Job believes. Uh, When the apostles are scourged, the apostles rejoice. Uh, When Jonah is uh, drowned and in the whale, he looks to the holy temple. And Rutherford goes on to say that every man, when he's thrown into a furnace, is going to cast a smell as he truly is. Just think about that image. There's a 17th century Rutherford preaching on this passage in which Jesus' soul is troubled and he prays. And Rutherford says, this is how you get to know a man or a woman. When you throw them in a furnace, what do their ashes smell like? He says you throw a hypocrite into a furnace and he produces the smell of a hypocrite. And he says when you throw a saint into a furnace, the yielding odor is the odor of saintliness. It's not a powerful image. I wish I could preach that way. Instead, I just quote guys who can. And Paul's hearing this news about them, isn't he? He's hearing news about his brothers and his sisters, those whom he desires affectionately as a mother, her child. And he knows they're hurting and they're enduring pain. But what he's saying is that the furnace is producing a beautiful scent. Brothers and sisters, there is something poignantly important about our suffering that relates to our abundant growth and our increasing love for one another. It is right to thank God because they are living the ideal Christian life in this age. They're living the life of suffering and not complaining, hurting, but not turning their eyes off of God. In pain, but loving their brothers and sisters. And that's verses three and four. That's the Christian life. And Paul, he's praising God for it. But now for the Christian hope. You know, in this particular letter, in each chapter, Paul is going to explicitly refer to the second coming. In fact, many find verse 7 of this chapter to be the very theme of the whole letter. When the Lord Jesus is revealed, when the Lord Jesus is revealed, when the Lord Jesus is revealed. And so what Paul says in verse 5 is he says that their Christian life right now is actually legal proof of something. Uh, That's the word in verse 5, evidence. That there's something about their life right now that is a manifestation of something larger and greater. It's, It's a proof. That's what their life is. What does he mean by that? Well, evidence is always a manifestation of something that isn't obvious. That's what evidence is. That's why evidence is shown in the courtroom. Uh, That which is not readily apparent becomes apparent uh, because of the evidence. And Paul is saying that this Christian life that they're living, 
in which they are growing in faith and growing uh, in their love for one another amidst suffering and affliction. He says, that life that you're living, brothers and sisters, and the life that I'm living here in Corinth is evidence. What is it evidence of? Well, it's evidence of a couple of things. It's evidence uh, that uh, God's righteousness is a judging righteousness. That's the first thing. And it's also evidence uh, that uh, their uh, worth is high in God's sight. God's righteous judgment and their worth in God's eyes. That is what their life is evidence of. And I just want to say right along with you, that makes almost no sense at all. I mean, that's not the real issue. The real issue is I'm hurting and I'm looking for relief. But Paul, he goes on. He, he says that this is evidence of something greater. A, a larger narrative is at place. Uh, something that's very hard to see. Very hard to believe. Your life is evidence of that. To Paul, everything about your life today needs to be evidence of something that is going to happen in the future. Everything about your life today and my life today as those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, is to serve as evidence for what is promised for us in the future. Let me say a bit more about this. Our tendency is to live thoroughly and vibrantly in the present or in the near future. The, the, the things that happen to me today are the most important things in the whole world. We, we all have a tendency to just live in the future. Uh, today is the most important day. How I feel right now is my most important feeling. Or maybe we extend a little bit into the future. What I'm going to do this afternoon when I leave this place, that's the most important thing to me. How I'll feel then is the most important thing to me. But that's about all we go. Maybe we'll go two days uh, in the future. Uh, but we have a tendency uh, to get lost in our uh, appetite for the present. This afternoon is the most important afternoon. And so I'm thinking about that. I, I know that all of us, when we uh, read uh, Revelation, the last book of the Bible... Uh, we uh, can be filled with confusion. Uh, but uh, one uh, Scottish pastor, a man by the name of Alexander White, spent a great deal of his time teaching uh, uh, young people who were preparing for ministry. And, and he gave them this approach when you look at Revelation. Uh, he uh, cautioned them to not get lost in uh, counting out days and uh, trying to understand all of the minute details of Revelation, uh, laying it out on a, on a timeline, uh, trying to piece uh, everything together that they might be able to prophesy uh, the future. Uh, Alexander White, as he's talking uh, to his students, he says, you, you need to remember uh, that the book of Revelation is uh, meant to provide present comfort. It is a blessing for us right here and now in the present. And so we read about God's will for uh, the future and we are comforted in our lives in the present. Alexander White says this to his students, this is early 1900s, he says, by nature our eyes are blinded to the momentous import of today. Our ears are stopped to its crying uh, urgency. We stop uh, everything to focus on the present. And he says for a Christian you need to come out of that just long enough to see a future. 
You need to understand something about the future that you would better understand the life that you are living in the present. And he says, what you need to do is you need to see those things that God has promised, uh, the reign of Jesus fully known in the future, to see now and hear the reign of Christ in the present. To see him gathering in that countless multitude one by one now. To understand that, uh, that amidst the rude framework of your daily life under the crushing tread of sorrow and sickness and death in the cold and all but lifeless routine of religious duties, the Christian needs to do this. He needs to be patiently following out God's eternal purpose of grace towards him. It's almost as if he's saying that we need to be shaken out of the present to uh, go and understand God's promises in the future to then return and better understand the present. That's what Alexander White is saying to his students. And I think that's what Paul is saying to us when he talks about the great Christian hope in verses 5 through 10. Paul is taking us into the promises of the future uh, that we would see how blessed and cared for we are in the present. And Alexander White tells his students, see God's work in the future that you would understand his eternal purpose of grace towards you right now. You know, God's eternal purpose does have something to do with your life and my life today, right now, and this afternoon, and the new week. And what does this promise of future have to do with the Thessalonians? You know, Paul, he's already said to the Thessalonian Christians in 1 Thessalonians 3 that our suffering as Christians is a part of God's plan for us. Do you remember him saying that? That that our suffering is God's destined plan for us. And he's going to say later in Philippians 1.29 that it has been granted to us that we, for the sake of Christ, should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Our suffering, our affliction right now, that's a part of God's plan for us. And Paul jars the Thessalonian Christians to think about the future reality, the second coming, and its practical implications for their life in the present. Well, what is he saying to them then? I think he's saying three things. I want to look at them real quickly. Why is Paul uh, dragging them out into the future so that when he brings them back into the present, they'd see three things? First is this. He wants his brothers and sisters to understand that just as assuredly as there's a righteous judgment for the unrighteous believer, there is a self-conscious consideration of God for your worthiness in the kingdom today as a believer. You see, Paul is putting together uh, the future for the unbeliever and the future for the believer. And he's saying, just as assuredly as the unbeliever will receive the righteous judgment from God, the believer the believer is actually considered righteous by God today and for all eternity. That may not be your problem this morning, uh, thinking that God has a future uh, for those non-believers, that God is going to get those people. But if you do, Paul is correcting you and showing you that while that is true, would you be encouraged to know that God, in His great grace, considers you to be righteous when you aren't right now 
and for all eternity. He sends the believers, Paul does, into the future that they might know that God views them in the present as righteous in his eyes. Just a small portion of proof for this. The word consider actually shows up in verse 5 in the ESV. That God actually considers you Christian. But when you see the word consider in verse 6, with regards to the unbeliever, the word consider doesn't actually show up in the Greek text. And Paul is being explicit. Yes, indeed, the righteous God will judge the unbeliever in the future. But you, believer, in the present and for all eternity, God considers you. He sees you. He notices you. And you, he calls righteous in Christ Jesus. The second uh, reason why Paul sends them into the future and brings them back into the present, just as assuredly as Christ will uh, judge the unbeliever in the second coming, so too will he provide relief to the believer in the present. That's what's in verse 7. There is certainly pain in this life, but God will provide relief to you that maybe you feel in the present you most certainly will in the future. Paul is comparing and contrasting the unbeliever's future with the believer's future and present. Here's where, here's where I think Paul is taking us. He's taking us here. This is the third thing. The unbeliever is going to suffer away from the presence of God. That's verse 9. The unbeliever is going to suffer away from the presence of God. And Paul wants us to know that. He's addressing Christians. Why does he want us to know that? Because the believer will never suffer apart from the presence of God. Your suffering and your affliction that you feel in the present is not a suffering and affliction that comes because of the lack of presence with God. The suffering happening right now is accompanied by the presence of Jesus Christ himself. That's why Paul says in verses 1 and 2, he is explicit that the Thessalonians have the grace and peace of God right now in the present from the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that. In the first two verses, he is reminding them of the presence that they have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's not true for the unbeliever. They will be far from his presence, further now than they can possibly imagine. But you, believer, you have God's presence right now Suffering and affliction doesn't shake it off. Now, this is difficult, isn't it? Why is Paul talking about the second coming? How is it that the second coming provides any blessing to them in their present sufferings and afflictions? Well, this is how. Those things that the unbeliever uh, will most certainly acknowledge, those things uh, will also be acknowledged by you as a believer. You, we need to know this. In the future, all of our doubts are going to seem petty. All of our suffering is going to seem so small. In the future, standing face to face with our Lord and Savior, you will laugh at those things that serve to be an encumbrance between you and your Lord in this present age. Everything will pale in comparison. Our Father will vindicate Himself. When Jesus is with his believers face to face. Now how, how can this become the hope in our life right now? You know, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, if a profession of faith in Jesus Christ is simply not where you are right now, 
this passage tells you that your entire life needs to be a life in which you are scurrying in fear. There's really nothing else for you. To scurry in fear is exactly what Paul is saying for the unbeliever. You're going to be found out. Your hopes that you have right now, they're very temporary. Ultimately, they're meaningless. Uh, The relief that you uh, think that you have right now, that relief is temporary. Your separation from God is actually going to increase in severity at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Those are hard things to hear But that's what Paul is saying this morning if you are not a believer. But the flip side of that, and this is Paul's real purpose, his real purpose is to help people who are hurting and in pain. If you're here as a believer, none of those things are actually true for you. Your life can be lived as a life in peace even amidst affliction. The the pain and the hurt and the persecution that you're feeling right now, they don't define you and they won't last If you're here as a Christian, uh, there actually is no judgment remaining for you in the future. It's done. It's over. It's finished at the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no future obstacle that you have to deal with. There's no judgment for you at all. If you're here as a Christian, uh, you will one day know true relief, relief to such a degree that all of your pain is put into perspective in the face of Jesus And if you're a Christian right now, you are not separated from God. And you're actually going to become even closer to him at the second coming. Your uh, your, uh, closeness and intimacy with God actually grows over time. Now, that should be encouraging, should it not? And that's what Paul is saying to them. Everything that they're dealing with in life right now, everything, it has a purpose. God is taking them to his own objective for his own glory. I said a couple weeks ago that there's a larger narrative than the narrative that you feel about your personal life right now. The the things that, that you get lost in thought over right now, that's not part of the larger narrative in your life. The narrative is so large that the suffering and affliction that you, hear, that you are experiencing right now actually serve your ability to grow in your love for God and grow in your love for brothers and sisters. That's a divine surprise of God's grace. The future suddenly becomes a bountiful relief of grace and mercy. Well, Paul's encouraging them. He knows they're hurt. And he refuses to just sit around and talk about their struggles. He shows to them the great Christian hope. Jesus will return. And then he finishes with the unflagging Christian purpose beginning at verse 11. Uh, Paul says that to this end, we always pray for you. This is the goal for you in this life. And if you look at verses 11 and 12, you learn an awful lot about what God does. The great purpose of the Christian life is to acknowledge that the great purpose of the Christian life is not their purpose, but God's purpose. That God will do his work. That our God may make you worthy of his calling. He's the one who does that. The purpose of the Christian life, Paul says in closing, is the life that's to be moved by another. The life to find its purpose in another. Paul is saying that the purpose of the Christian life is to be liberated from your own purpose for your life and to be subservient to God's purpose. 
And in two verses, Paul actually draws us up into God's narrative and shows us that the things that are happening in our life are happening according to his purpose and his control and that he's with us and that his desire is to glorify himself through us that we would grow closer to him but also closer to our brothers and sisters. Paul comes full circle, doesn't he? That the abundant growth of faith and the increasing love for brothers and sisters is actually the work of God in their lives as they set self aside. And they live for a purpose that's larger than their own purpose. You see, this is the Christian's great purpose. The the older theologians would say that the purpose of the Christian life is an increasing emptying of self over and over and over again, emptying self. And how remarkable it is that one of the tools that helps a Christian set aside their own purposes is the tool of affliction and suffering and persecution. I don't even like hearing that. I don't expect you to like hearing that. But for the Christian, our pain serves God's purpose. Our pain actually serves God's purpose. Our unflagging purpose in this life is to set aside our own will. And when we can't set aside our own will, affliction will help us to do that. Now, To Paul, this is not finishing on a low note, and I don't want you to hear me finishing on a low note. This is a great purpose. What is the alternative? The alternative is to live a life that is governed by your own knowledge and your own power. That, well, that's terrifying. Because when you're suffering in in those circumstances, you are really suffering. If you don't help yourself, if you don't make the suffering stop, if you don't roll out of it, if you don't employ your strength to make this go away, you're in a lot of trouble. But for the Christian, they breathe a sigh of relief. None of these things are beyond the control of my Heavenly Father. In fact, they serve His holy purpose. You see, that's very different. Well, let me pray for us, and then we will confess our faith together. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that uh, there is a role for pain in this life. That it doesn't set our course, it doesn't own us, we are not in bondage to, to our suffering and pain. In your great grace, it serves your purpose. Oh, Jesus, we pray that you would come, that we would know that this is true. But, Father, would you help us to live lives that manifest that this is true more and more, day by day. Give us greater faith for you and give us greater love for our brothers and sisters. May this show your purpose in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.